Well, hey, thanks for being here uh, in the room. Thanks for being here online with us. If this is your first time with us, my name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor here at MCC. And uh, in my opinion, you've picked a great Sunday to be here if this is your first time uh, because we're starting a series this morning that we're calling Achilles. So, which begs the question, by the way, do you know who he is? And do you know what he's famous for? Those are really things. Because, listen, and I want to say this, there is no real evidence that Achilles was a real person Uh, but he was the central character in Homer's uh, Iliad. And you'll understand why I want to make that uh, distinction, that disclaimer here in just a moment. But Achilles was one of the greatest warriors in Greek mythology. He was the most successful soldier in the Greek army during the Trojan War. And back in 2004, and maybe you saw this, there was a movie called Troy. It came out, it was based on the Iliad and portrayed the battle between the ancient kingdoms of Troy and Sparta. And I know what you're thinking, right? I didn't know Mike was in a movie. That, that's not me. That's, that's Brad Pitt. It happens a lot. Listen, I, I want to say this again so there's no confusion. Much of this, no doubt, is fantasy. There is, for example, there's no evidence that Achilles, or even Helen, for that matter, existed. Achilles is a literary character, not a literal character. I want to make sure you get that. But most scholars agree that Troy itself was a real city and that the Trojan War actually did happen. Now, I make that clear because as the story goes, Achilles was born, when he was born, his mom wanted to protect him from harm. And so she held him by the heel and dipped him into the River Styx. Now, in Greek mythology, the River Styx was located in the underworld and had special power. Achilles became invulnerable to harm everywhere on his body except his heal. Right. So you have heard the story. That's where his mom, and by the way, that's where he got shot by an arrow and consequently, subsequently died. So, but today the term Achilles heel, we still use that, right? And maybe you've heard this phrase. Yes. Uh, it refers to a weakness or a vulnerable point in someone, even someone strong. So what we're going to talk about over the next six weeks are areas of our lives that can be an Achilles heel for those of us who are disciples of Jesus. And so we're all on the same page as we get started about what a disciple is. Uh, that definition, along with the verses for this morning and some other notes, are all in the Version Bible app. I want to encourage you to open that, and if you don't have it, to download that to your phone. But here's what we say. When we talk about what a disciple is, so we all know this together, we say that a disciple is someone who is following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and is committed to the mission of Jesus. And especially for those of us who are new disciples... What we're going to look at might catch you kind of unguarded, but even for those who have been disciples for decades of your life, right, uh, it, it can catch you. Life can catch you as well. We can be very mature in our faith and still have Achilles heels in our walk with Christ. Uh, let me say that a different way. You do. I do. We have Achilles heels uh, in our faith. So our faith is first about being. It's about who we are. But right behind that is what we do. It's how we apply what God says to us through his word into our day-to-day lives. James has been called the most practical book in the Bible when it comes to our faith, and it addresses some Achilles heels uh, in the early church, which, with, which we still struggle with, like, for instance, the Bible. And if you're wondering yourself, how can the Bible be an Achilles heel for a disciple of Jesus? Well, that's the teaser. You have to come back next week and find out, all right? So uh, it could be prejudice, prejudice coming at you or coming from you. Uh, uh, it could be controlling your mouth. It could be patience, 
Anybody's heel hurt yet? Uh, today we're starting at the beginning of the book with something that all of us face in life. Some of us are facing this right now. And I'm telling you right now, it has the ability to bring your faith down. So this is the first thing that James addresses in this letter. And it, it, it's, kind of a stra- it's kind of strange, really. You, you would think he would want to sort of, you know, ease in with uh, his audience uh, by talking about sweet things, maybe hope and love for a little bit while, and then just kind of slam us later, you know? Uh, but instead, he gets, you know, right after he gets out of the introduction, which tells us who he is and tells us who the letter is to, he nails us with one of the hardest verses in the Bible. So check this out, James chapter one, beginning in verse one, James, the servant of God and, and the, the Lord Jesus Christ. So just to make sure James is the half brother of Jesus, we will celebrate in three months when we get to Christmas, the story of how Jesus was conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit. Matthew one twenty five reminds us of that story. We'll look at that later this year. But Mark six tells us that Jesus had other brothers and sisters who were actually children of Joseph and Mary. That's why I say he's a half-brother of Jesus. He's writing to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. And so, you know, these are Jewish Christians who live outside of Israel, and they're scattered outside of Israel for various reasons. But in the book of Acts, in chapter 8, we find out the some are scattered because of persecution of the early church. So they're literally, some of these folks are literally running for their lives. And then he says, greetings. Thanks for reminding us. Good letter so far. (laughs) But it does set up what he's about to say. Verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. James reminds me here of the teachers who on the first day of school start with lectures and homework. Uh, I mean, do you remember, I mean, do you remember this? I remember when I was little, it seemed we would talk about our supplies. We would, you know, get to know each other. There was no homework, Uh, maybe a short essay, a paragraph on what we did that summer. And then there were the teachers who were obviously retired officers from the Marine Corps. Uh, Their name already on the board. They didn't smile at you when they came in, when you came into the room. They, they didn't smile at you at all until they started piling homework, right, uh, on top of you. Do you remember those teachers? <laughs> Some of you were those teachers. Some of you are those teachers today. Uh, James is one of those teachers. Ben Franklin is quoted as saying, the only two certainties in life are death and taxes. James would add to that list, trials. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, not if. I want to make sure you... It's when, not if, when, literally, when you face multicolored adversities, not just a variety in types, but a variety in intensities as well. And listen, I, I know what some of you are going through right now. I know what some of you have been through and are just now coming out of. And I also know there's a whole lot more that I don't know that's going on. So it's hard, it's hard for me to even read those words out loud. Consider it pure joy when you face trials. Because it would seem fair to me that someone's got to be thinking, how, how dare you say that to me right now? And that's a fair question. And I want to give you some reasons from God's word, but let me offer a warning to you first. If you're in the middle of something right now that has you by the throat, you may not be in a place where you can hear this. Uh, Just because something is true doesn't mean that you're at a place in your life where you're ready to accept it. 
once the pain has subsided some, the time will come when you're ready to process this. And if that's you this morning, then here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If that's you, I'm going to ask you to listen. Not not necessarily to agree. You don't have to agree with me, but to listen and to hang on to these notes. Again, they're in the you version. And when things ease up a little bit, would you go back and review this? Because 2020 hindsight brings clarity to what may otherwise be an impossible message to hear. And remember, James isn't writing to a bunch of people who live in a free country, who enjoy the protection of the government, who had food and clothing and shelter at their disposal. Verse 1 again, he's writing to Christians who had been scattered, some because of persecution and, and were struggling to survive, and who were hated and being attacked by their government, and who wondered where their next meal was going to be coming from. And somehow... Somehow a message has been spoken uh, to people in our culture that once you give your life to Jesus, it just becomes easier, right? No more problems, no more troubles, no trials. And I'm not sure where that comes from, but I know where it doesn't come from because Jesus said the exact opposite. He said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. He was writing to people who understood the meaning of of hard times. So from the start, I think it's important for all of us to know, and so it's in the notes, joy from trials is a choice. That's not a feeling. Uh, This is why it can be such an an Achilles heel. It's a decision you have to make. It's not an emotion you're going to experience. It's proactive, not reactive. If you're sitting around waiting for adversity to make you feel happy, you are in for a long wait, my friend. And I want to make sure you get this too. Joy is not the result of hard times. Joy is the response too hard times. James doesn't say, feel it to be pure joy when you face trials. Realistically, we, we don't feel joy when we face hard times. We can, however, make a conscious decision to find the joy. We consider it. We make this mental choice to optimistically seek the value, learn the lesson, gain the growth in the difficulty that difficulty can produce. Nazi concentration camp survivor Viktor Frankl said, the last of the human freedoms is to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. But that's why exactly that problems in life, the unfairness of life, can be an Achilles heel to us. To respond this way is not a natural response. Why then would God call us to embrace problems in life with joy? So let me just give you a few that James gives us. And the first is that trials can help me grow up. Now, when I was in high school, if you wanted to light my fuse fast, all you had to say was, hey, grow up, Tuttle. Uh, There was one girl in particular who could say that in a way that, man, it cut like a knife. Grow up. I thought, grow up. I'll grow up. I'll fill your hubcaps with rocks, and then we'll see who needs to grow up. (laughs) And I know you like the end of the story. She did finally grow up. Uh, James says... The testing of your faith produces perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may become mature. Look, we all face multicolored adversities. And I've shared this before, but I think it bears repeating because it's important for us. Uh, And so it's in the notes. Sometimes I, I, I cause these problems for myself because of choices I make. I make choices and bring hard things into my own life. Sometimes I face trials because... Others have made choices that affect my life. As a matter of fact, someone said, your thorn in the flesh may have a first and last name. Some are caused because Satan's not a fairy tale. And as Jesus said in John 10.10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. 
And he's active about that. Some are merely annoying, like a pebble in your shoe. Others are shattering, as what Dr. James Means speaks of in his book, A Tearful Celebration. He's reflecting on his wife's death from cancer, and he writes, My experience is not unusual. I have, I've been in hospital rooms with godly parents and heard their sincere prayers that the life of their child be spared, and the child die. Missionaries entrust their lives to God's safekeeping, but sometimes while they're on the field doing his work, they're murdered. Couples fervently ask God for a child, but none are born, or, or worse. What happened to their prayers? Where is the Christian who does not have his own private tragedy to tell? And I just have to wonder if there's anyone in the room who doesn't understand that here and hasn't felt it here. We, we know. And so whether, listen, your troubles are a result of your sin or someone else sinning against you or just the fact that life isn't fair, no matter where that trouble comes from, it becomes an opportunity to develop perseverance and maturity. It can help you. It can help you prepare for the troubles that will likely come later on. And in fairness, James reminds us that this is a process. The testing of your faith produces perseverance. It's not something that's granted quickly. It's something that, that comes with time and experience. Some Christians get frustrated because they read about something they want to put into their life, incorporate into their life, and they want it to happen immediately. But maturity of faith takes time and, again, experience. That's why children shouldn't be allowed to stru- or should be allowed to struggle and stumble and fall so that they can grow up to be strong. If we protect our sons and daughters and grandchildren from every bump and bruise, our kids will never be ready for the real world because there are real bumps and bruises coming. At the same time, our kids need to be protected from overwhelming pain and tragic loss because they're not ready for that. Adults need to allow kids to go through hard times, but we also need to protect them from too much suffering too soon. Strength comes gradually as we learn to process our suffering. We need to remember that God will work through our lives, but first he has to work in our lives. You know, Max Lucado said, God may lead you through a storm at 30 so that you can endure a hurricane at 60 because he knows it's coming and he's trying to get you ready. Life is a process. Each trial offers learning and growth so we can handle what's around the next corner. Listen, I, I don't like the strain it often takes to become mature, but I can choose joy because I know I'm being matured. But there's more to what he says, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. So here's something else. Trials can help me wise up. And wisdom, as we all know, is the right use of knowledge. It's knowing what to do based on what you know and what you have experienced. So what do we learn? One of the things we learn is that when you're going through trials, you're going to face decisions. And even easy decisions can seem difficult when you're in a trial. But it's likely you're going to be faced with some difficult decisions, decisions that you'll be unsure about. So some lessons we learned during trials. Number one, crisis times are hard times to make decisions. During those times, it's really easy to make a bad decision. You probably know someone who has had a job, didn't like the environment, and so they went to another job and found that environment was worse than the first environment. 
I tend to agree with Edward Sheldon. He said, when you die, God will look you over, not for medals or degrees, but for scars. In part, it's because you were actually in the battle. You weren't just watching it. And so, because there's wisdom to be gained from the battle, we, we wear that. We learn that. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is the Father who is full of mercy and all comfort. And he comforts us every time we have trouble, so when others have trouble we can comfort them with the same comfort God gives us. I struggle with that because between services, I had one of our moms here who lost a five-year-old years and years and years ago. And I will never forget, she, this little girl drowned in their pool. And she told me that just recently, she had a friend ask her to talk to another friend because they just lost their child. And they need someone who's been through it. So we kind of stood up here for a moment after last service. And it was awful. It was awful. And yet, God will not waste our pain through the way he has helped her. He is about to use her to help someone else. And that wisdom from experience isn't merely for wisdom's sake. We learn how to help others in a way we wouldn't know if we hadn't just gone through that ourselves somewhere in our life. And what we're learning guides us in who we're becoming, which I think may be the hardest but the most important thing to remember. As we work our way through trials and trust God, that's a lot of work. That's developing us. That's growing us. That's making us into someone that looks more like Jesus. One more reason we should choose joy is in verses 9 to 11. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. And in the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. I just want to say this to you. When you go through adversity, trials will bring clarity. What's important in life becomes clear pretty quick. Poverty in general, these people running for their lives, especially new, that when you're struggling financially, your self-worth takes a shot. I mean, people tell us, right? And we believe if you have nothing, you are worth nothing right? We believe that. We may not want to say it out loud, but we buy that. And James is saying, no, that's, that's absolutely not true. And to those who are rich, we trust in our wealth. We think our wealth makes us something. And James says, don't trust in your stuff to get you through tough times. Trust in God. And we need to see that in both good and bad, they come into every life, that none of us is better than the rest of us. And he's saying we need to look at ourselves and others and at God with a sense of clarity. Somebody said trials are like smelling salts. They may not be pleasant, but they have a way of waking us up and making everything clear. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, which is hard. And it, maybe for you this morning, it seems impossible. And granted, James has given us three great reasons why we should. It prepares us for life, leads to wisdom, gives us clarity, especially about priorities in life. But if that's not enough, 
I mean, what do you do, even knowing all that, it just don't seem like you can do it. James puts an exclamation on his discussion in verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So this all begs the question, what if the grief never ends? What if the pain that you feel, whatever that is, physical or emotional or mental, what if it doesn't go away? What if you keep asking God and begging God, pleading with him, and he doesn't make you well? James says, then remember this. This is not all that there is. We want to think that it is. We kind of act like it is. We surround ourselves with stuff so that it seems like this is it. But what he's saying is if you belong to Jesus and if you love God and if you hold on to your faith in the darkest hours of the night, someday, someday this trouble will be over. Someday the pain will go away. And someday your father who loves you will wipe all the tears from your eyes. And he will no longer allow any more suffering. There will be no more pain. It will all be gone forever. Paul said in Romans 8, I consider, by the way, the same word that James used, consider pure joy. Paul says, I consider that what we suffer at this present time cannot be compared at all with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. Peter reminded his readers in all this, and he's been talking about the promise of heaven, He says, in in, in all of this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you've had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come to prove the genuineness of your faith. Multicolored adversities. And let me be clear, you will face them. Sometimes as an individual, today reminds us that we as a nation may face these kind of adversities together. They help us when you face them. They help us remember, thank you, Jesus. This is not it. This is not what it's all about. And please don't hear me saying that that makes the impossible easy. I know it doesn't. But it makes the impossible possible. And it's why each week we come to a time of communion. We we take a hard stop in our service every week. And we remember that Jesus died on the cross for our sins because, because, thank you, Jesus, this is not it. This moment reminds us there's more to what's going on than what we can see. It reminds us that there's more for us, more in store for us than this world that we live in because Jesus died on a cross for us. Thank you, Jesus. This isn't it. So for those of you who are in the middle of hell right now, can I ask you, as you hold the emblems that remind us today of Jesus' body and blood and the price that he paid for you, will you trust him in this moment that is awful? And may maybe has been awful for a long time, and you just don't see an end to it. Will you trust Jesus? Just just trust him today. Will you trust him with today? And, 
And then tomorrow, will you get up and trust him again? And the next day, and the next day, and that's it. That's, that's all you need right now is just to hold on to him. And for those of us who are not in the midst of it, at some point, you will. At some point, you will be. May our time of communion help you decide now that you'll trust him then. We stop to remember, not just backwards, but to hold on forwards in our faith in him. So let's pray, and then we'll take it together. Father, we are grateful for a moment like this where we, we get to stop, and it's incredibly noticeable that everything just sort of stops. And Jesus, we stop to remember the price you paid for the decisions we've made, our sins, not someone else's decision, <laughs> they were ours. And we racked up a debt we could not pay. And you went to the cross on our behalf, and we thank you for that. But even as we think about that, we need to remember forward <laughs> that, that you didn't just die for our sins, you rose from the dead, and now you are with your Father in heaven, just waiting for the word to come back. Because this isn't all there is. Help us to remember that. It's hard when we get in our cars and go to our houses and eat the food, have friends, watch ball games, have a job, go to school. It's hard to remember this isn't all there is. But this moment where we stop, kind of the anchor that we place in our lives, that everything else is tied to, to remind us who you are and who we are, who we belong to, and what we're looking forward to, so that we can hold on while we're here. Father, may this moment honor you, and Spirit, we count on you in our lives. And Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.